All right. We are in chapters 32 through 34. Like Brad said, you'll notice that's a jump. That's, we, we skipped around a little bit. Um, when we initially planned out how to do this, we didn't take into consideration that we, we would be at T4G. And, uh, and so Tyler was originally going to uh, teach on, the, um, on chapters 25 through 31, and then I was going to hit 32. Uh, but then as things kind of fell out, we realized, you know, it might, it might work better even for us to look at 35 through 30 or 25 through 31 and then uh, 35 to 40 uh, all in one bite, which is a lot, I realize. Um, sorry, Tyler. Uh, but, but we feel like because there's so much continuity between these passages that it just kind of made sense to talk about all of it together um, those sections talk about the plotting and planning of the right ways to worship the Lord, the tabernacle, God's presence with his people. And then the second section, which is going to be uh, 35 and beyond, looks at how that is actually put into place when Moses relays all this to the people. Um, so the passage we're in tonight then falls right smack dab in the middle. And if you're reading through Exodus, it it kind of comes out of nowhere, um, especially the way then that it gets back into the subject matter after this episode. Um, but it, it, that serves to highlight just how important chapters 32, 33, and 34 are, um, given the context that they fall in, which is the presence of God dwelling with his people. And so then these chapters, which, which mainly deal with the, the golden calf that the Israelites make, that whole episode, um, these chapters are a real contrast um, to this idea of God, a holy God dwelling with a very corrupt people. Even though they're his chosen possession, um, they, they still are, are his enemies in a lot of ways. And they revert back to this again and again, as we'll see so to catch us up, the, the biggest ideas then so far that we've talked about in Exodus have had a lot to do with God's faithfulness, God's uh, faithfulness to his people, their faithfulness to him. We've talked about Moses. We've talked about how God has really set Moses up as this key figure in the life of Israel and the whole Old Testament. Moses is a type of uh, the Moses to come, who is Jesus. Um, but not only that, we've seen God's sovereignty uh, and the way that he leads his people, using Moses to do that. We've seen God display his judgment and his mercy through the Passover. We've seen God display his holiness and the standards that he has for his people through the law and all the things that go with that, the way that God has chosen for his people to live, not just internally, individually, uh, and not just as a community of faith, like within the people of Israel, but God has a standard for holiness that Israel is to follow within the context of the nations. Um, by being set apart from the nations, but also being a representative on earth of all that it means to be part of God's kingdom. Um, it becomes a big deal as the Old Testament goes on that Israel doesn't have a king. But it's because God truly is their king. And, and as such, then the people of Israel are meant to put forth into the world an idea of who their God is and, and what he uh, values and cherishes and and so this 
these three chapters, just they, they, they're so jarring for all of those reasons because they take such a sharp turn away from what the, the promise and the hope is that we've seen so far. Um, and so they, 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 they make quite a shift. So just to, um, I guess, give you uh, some, some guidance as to where we are, the uh, chapter 32, a little bit of 33, talks specifically about the creation of this golden calf that they worship. Chapter 33 um, has a really interesting little detail about Moses meeting with the Lord in this tent, which is a, a precursor of the tabernacle that God gives instructions for them to make inside the camp. Moses, up to this point, has had to go outside the camp to talk to God. Um, Moses uh, does a lot of talking to the Lord in these chapters. The Lord does a lot of communicating with Moses in these chapters. Um, and, and as a result, we, we get a glimpse of the, the glory of the Lord as it, as it shines around Moses and, and actually comes forth from his face. Um, Moses makes, uh, has to make some new stone tablets. That's what 34 is, is about, um, the, the reinstitution of the law, this covenant that's been made, and as we'll see, immediately broken, has to be reforged, renewed. Uh, and so that's what 34 uh, has to do with. And of course, all of this points us ahead um, to, to much greater things, not just in Exodus, but in the, in the entire Bible. Um, one thing that I think we haven't really talked about much in, in our messages through and work through Exodus is, um, is, is how practical this is for, for us as the people of God. I know we've talked and tried to apply this to the life of the church. Um, but what I mean is, I think sometimes we find such profound nuggets of truth and gospel wisdom in the Old Testament that we're always kind of blown away and, oh, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, the Old Testament, you know, you just got to really dig. And, and I want you to see, Tyler and I both want you to see that, that the Old Testament is, is all, it's filled with stuff just like that. Um, maybe Tyler and I have been helpful, maybe we haven't been, but there, there are ways for you to mine the depths of the Old Testament for yourself, and I'd really encourage you to do that, um, not, not uh, uh, to belabor it. Last week when we were at this conference, we, we heard a great sermon from Ligon Duncan. If you go to t4g.org, you can find this sermon that he preached. It's on Leviticus 19, and it's called The Whole, W-H-O-L-E, In Our Holiness. And he's preaching from Leviticus, uh, a sermon that is meant to inspire and encourage the saints in, in, in the hope and the joy that we have in the gospel, right? Leviticus is not usually the place that we like to go for our morning devotion time, right? Um, but he, he does it so well, and I think, uh, I think there was a lot of uh, deserved praise and excitement about that, that sermon. And if you haven't listened to it, you need to. Uh, it'd be helpful to you. But one thing that really stands out to me, though, is what Duncan's doing is not really all that outlandish. Um, this is what the whole Old Testament will do as we read it and if we, if we sit down and meditate on it. Um, and if you have uh, just some helpful resources, even just a good study Bible. I mean, you can read Exodus, you can read Leviticus, you can read Jeremiah, you can, you can fly through the Old Testament and find all sorts of hints at the gospel. Um, so I, I'd encourage you to do that. That's not the point of this chapter or this text, but, um, but I think it's just, it's just worth doing. Um, Ed, Edmund Clowney, 
is another good name to just look up. He's got a few books where he does just this thing. He sets a great example for how to just read the Old Testament and find the gospel as you do so. I'd encourage you to read books by Edmund Clowney. He's got two in particular that are really helpful. Anyway, let's look at Exodus chapter 32, 33, 34, and and try to figure this out. Um, The golden calf story is one that we're all really familiar with, I'm sure. Um, you know, they, they, they're waiting on Moses and they just decide to make themselves a golden cow and they're going to worship it. And, and it's just, man, already they're, they're making idols and, and they've already messed up. And, and that's true, I guess, in the abstract, but let's dig a little bit deeper into it and see exactly what's going on here. The, I think there are, there are some key ideas in this, in this passage that, that would be worth looking at um, in depth. So one big idea here is that the holiness of God and the corruption of God's people don't mix. <laughs> um, they, they don't mix. Up to this point, we've talked a lot about God is holy. He's called his people to be holy and set apart. And there's all sorts of hope for the future, that if they will abide by these laws, that they'll do what the Lord says, then they'll be ushered into the promised land. They'll live in harmony and peace and joy and prosperity and, and, and great power, and, and they'll be an example to the nations. And there, there's a lot of hope. And it all comes crashing down right here. All of it is completely shattered right here. So if you look, or I'll read through um, the first, let's look at the first 10 verses of chapter 32. Just let me, let me read this to you uh, as, a, as a refresher. So when the people saw, right, remember Moses is up on the mountain. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, Moses's brother, kind of the, the, the priest of God's people. And they said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us, as for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And I want you to notice, that's capital L-O-R-D. He's not, I mean, he's still referring to the God of the Israelites. We'll make a feast to Yahweh. I think it's an important detail to note, and you'll see in a minute. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, again, on the mountain, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore... Let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. That's, that should be terrifying, right? As you're reading that, you should be thinking, oh my goodness, <laughs> what, what in the world? You know, what's going to happen? But not only that, we, we get a glimpse of God's fierce, fierce wrath against sin. Uh, but, but first, let's talk about just the corruption of Israel for a second. 
right? That we, we've got this hope in the holiness of God. There's a big problem. Israel is not quite on par with the holiness of God, are they? They're, they're, and it's not just that they've made this golden calf. There are a, a thousand ways that they are showing themselves to be contrary to, to God's design for his people. Uh, from the very beginning of this chapter, we see that the people of God are very fickle. Very fickle, and they're very forgetful. Uh, not of general facts, they're forgetful of even the most important truths about the creation of this people, which is what the Lord has done for them. It's like they've totally forgotten everything. They gather themselves and they say, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what has become of him. Man, you know where he is. He's on the mountain. He's still talking to your God. How, how, I'm, what are we missing? I mean, they're just so quick to, 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 to forget and move on from Moses. But you notice something else about their language? Who do they think led them up out of Egypt? Moses. We don't know what's happened to the guy who led us out of, out of Egypt. Okay, now wait a second, though. Yeah, yeah, Moses certainly, he's the, the human being who walked you out and, and, and led you out that you will complain about and gripe against and all that. Yeah, he's the figurehead that you're looking for. But it wasn't Moses that led you out. Moses didn't just make the Red Sea part. That was the power of God Almighty who did that, right? So, so the Israelites have forgotten already the salvation that God has promised them and provided for them, even in that small form, um, which is funny to think about that, that the Red Sea, parting of the Red Sea is just a small version of actually the salvation that God has in store for his people. They've already forgotten. They've, they, they've already moved on. Uh, not only that, I mean, when, when, they're, when they're walking through, they, they grab the, the earrings and the jewelry that they have to make this, this calf. And it's not like they're just wealthy people. You know where they got all that, right? They plundered the Egyptians when they left. That was a promise that God made to Abraham, that they would receive all this wealth from the Egyptians. They would plunder their captors and, and hit the road. So, so they've forgotten about the Red Sea. They've forgotten who the Lord is. They, they, they don't really care much about God's anointed in Moses. And not only that, but they're using the gifts that God has given them as a means of, of idol worship. I mean, this is about as backwards as you can get it. And we're only in the first few verses of this chapter. They've completely, completely imploded in their own holiness. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complete unraveling. Uh, of where they stand before the Lord. It, it's, it's horrible, but it doesn't stop there. Because then we see Aaron in verse 2 actually help in this process. Aaron, the priest of God, the one who's supposed to lead them in the right worship of the one true God, uh, he, he's, he's, he's right there. He's an accomplice to the crime. He sets it up. He comes up with the idea. He lights the furnace. He says, let's build this thing. He makes an altar for the idol. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's horrible. It's really terrifying because the one who should be leading them in the right worship of the Lord has actually led them the opposite direction. But it doesn't stop there. Let's talk about the calf. I mean, Moses has just received the Ten Commandments. Now, he hasn't had a chance to come down the mountain and reveal these things to the Israelites yet. But how, how horrible is this? They've already broken two before he's had a chance to even deliver these things to them. And in particular, they break the second commandment, 
which uh, if, if, you, uh, if you've forgotten, go back to, to chapter 20 and look at verse 4. This, I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Man, this is getting bad. This is what you should be thinking as you're reading this. They have missed every single checkpoint of what you should do if you're the people of God. They've broken the second commandment before they even received it. And in doing so, they actually broke the first commandment too, that they would not have any other gods before the Lord God. Because they say these are the gods, plural. Apparently they've done something where it's not just this calf, but there's a whole, there's a whole pantheon that they've established for themselves uh, in such a short time having forgotten the, the God who delivered them. It doesn't stop there. Not only are they idolatrous and fickle and, uh, and led by uh, pagans, just about, but, but, but they're sacrilegious. And all of this, you know, remember I'm, I pointed out that they say, yeah, well, this is how we will worship the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, God. They still think that by doing this, they're honoring the one true God. They, they, they think, well, we can do this, and by doing this, we, you know, we, we fashion this bull. This is, this, is, this is what we think maybe the Lord looks like, and this is how we're going to worship him. This is so much easier than waiting around for a God we can't see or a leader we don't know where he is. We've got this object here that will represent for us the one true God. And they, they make offerings and sacrifices and all sorts of stuff. And, and, and making sacrifices to God isn't bad, but when you're doing it in these conditions, in this contest, it's, in context, it's actually sacrilege. They're blaspheming, right? Um, this, this, is, this is the people of God. And then at the end of it, in verse 7, it says that the, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They're licentious, right? They're, they're, they're living by their own determination of what's good and, and enjoyable. And, and that word to play, we don't have time to get into it, but, but let's just say it doesn't mean they, they had a kickball tournament set up. All right, this wasn't an, an inner church softball league we're talking about. That, that word is the same word that's used to describe the relationship between Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac has, has tried to make the claim that Rebekah is his sister to this foreign king, and the foreign king, he, he looks into the courtyard and sees that Isaac and Rebekah are playing, okay? And he comes away from this encounter thinking to himself, these people are married, right? It's that kind of playing that we're talking about. Whatever that means to you, this is, what has, this is what's going on. The people of God are so far away from the morality and, and, and the honor of God that, that he is giving to Moses in this very moment. But then, and this is how the Lord describes them in verse 9, they are stiff-necked. All right, these people are stubborn. Um, they, they won't change easily. They, they, their whole worldview is so warped. 
um, so much like the neighbors of the pagan nations around them um, that this is not just going to be a quick fix. That's the corruption of Israel. And, and when, when that is, is met with the holiness of God, there is nothing that can happen. There's nothing that you should expect to come of this but an absolute train wreck, right? The total collision of God's holiness with the, the unholiness of, of his people. God threatens to disown them. In verse 7, the Lord uses the language that they do. He says, Moses, the people you led up out of Egypt... They're, they're causing me some, uh, some, heart, some heart, uh, heartburn right now. God knows that he's the one who led them out of Egypt. He's saying, you know what? Maybe it's for the best that they think you're the one who did this because I'm about ready to disown them myself. That's strong language. And, uh, in, in verse 10, he, he outright says, leave me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. This is the wrath of God against idolatry that the Israelites have already given themselves over to. In, uh, at, at the end of this chapter, in verses 25 through 29, we see one of the ways that Moses determines that, that they should respond. and he, he sees what's going on, and Moses stands in the gate of the camp in verse 26 and says, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword in your side, each of you. Go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Well, that sounds pretty barbaric to us, but we have to remember right, that the holiness of God is such that, that for a people to dwell with him, he, he, he's not just going to tolerate open rebellion against him. God is physically dwelling among his people. This is the whole point of these chapters, is that God is about to establish his headquarters right in the middle of camp. If Moses doesn't kill these guys, the, the Lord's glory itself will, con, will consume them. Will, will totally wipe out the whole camp. Um, because the Lord's holiness is so much so much greater, I think, than, than we often want to, to think about. We think the holiness of God is something we can toy with or play with, that, that God's holiness is somehow trumped by God's love. But the truth is that God is just as wrathful as he is loving, as he is merciful. He doesn't change. He's not one thing one moment, or he's not more this, more that. No, in all of his ways, all of his characteristics, he is he is all of them to the fullest extent that he can be at, at, at every point. And so the holiness of God and, and the, the corruption of his people is a big, big problem if that God is going to dwell with you. It must be sought out and destroyed. So, so these, these chapters really actually provide us with kind of Israel's own uh, version of the fall. Remember Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they took of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, and they fell into sin and everything from that point on has been a mess. And right here is the same thing happening, but for the people of Israel. Right here we're seeing that, that they can't actually put any hope in themselves any more than Adam could put hope in his, himself. We're not going to get into it, but 
in chapter 32, 21 through 24, Moses comes down from the mountain. He confronts Aaron. And Aaron does the same thing before Moses that Adam does before the Lord, that Eve does before the Lord when he confronts them. Blame shifting. That's all Aaron does. At one point, Aaron says, look, I threw all this gold into the fire and out came this calf. I don't know what to tell you. Aaron, please, what are you talking about? That doesn't happen. But Aaron's got it in his head that this is the way. He, if, he can, if he can maybe make himself the passive agent in all this, somehow God's wrath will be subdued. But that's not how it works. The only, the only reason that God's covenant is going to be sustained, or, or in this case it needs to be renewed, is going to be because God is just merciful. That's the, that's the only way that this is going to work out well for anybody. And it's because we see the Lord's mercy shine forth in the person of Moses. Moses intercedes on Israel's behalf, and he goes between God and his people. This is the only way that this story ends in anything but absolute destruction. Uh, that's, that's actually my second big point, is that Moses intercedes on Israel's behalf. And he does this multiple times in these chapters. In, in, in chapter 32, verses 11 through 14, uh, he, he comes to the Lord and says, you, you, you have to remember all these promises you've made. You have to remember who you are to these people. You have to remember that the Egyptians will look on any destruction you wreak in this, in this place, and they will assume that it's because you were, just, you were just kind of manipulative and vindictive and brought them out in order to kill them. And the Lord, it says, he, he relents. Not because he, he changed his mind necessarily, but because through the agency of Moses, God determines that he will show mercy to his people. He doesn't, he doesn't wipe them out off the face of the earth right in that moment. In chapter 32, verses 30 through 32, Moses says this, and I, I, like, I want to read this to you because of one word in particular. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, This people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, or if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please block me out of your book that you have written. If you're not, gonna, if you're not going to save this people, I don't want to go on. He's saying, wipe me out with them. Because I can't live in a world where you would destroy your people like this. I've invested too much here for, for that to happen and me to go on. I remember the Lord had even told him that he would make Moses into a great nation. And Moses wants none of it because he identifies so much with his people. In chapter 33, verses 7 through 11, we see this, this elementary, rudimentary meeting place that Moses has with God, this tent outside the camp that no one can get near except Moses and, and Joshua. And that's where Moses meets with the Lord. It says, as a, as a friend, the Lord speaks to Moses there. Which is important, because what is Moses receiving on the mountain right now but the instructions for a better tent right in the middle of the camp where God can actually dwell among his people, um, where he himself consecrates the camp by his presence. Um, this, this, is, this is important. And, Mo, and, and, and Tyler's going to talk about this a lot next week, the idea of God dwelling with his people. For now, though, Moses has to be the, the mediator, the, the intermediary, the go-between, between God and his people. 
It's the, the presence of God meeting with Moses that is actually what holds this thing together. And it's through Moses' intercession that the people of God are, are pardoned eventually. It's not just that the Lord says, you know what, I won't destroy them. It, it, doesn't, just, it doesn't just wipe out their sin because the Lord says that. There's, there are steps here. Or at one point, Moses even says, if, if, if it's not enough for you not to destroy it, you, you have to promise me that you'll continue to go with us. Because if, if you don't, if you won't go with us, then I, I don't see how we're going to make it. Um, Moses says to the Lord in chapter 33, verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Can you hear Moses pleading with the Lord for Israel? There's, there's something that we need to see here. The Lord says in verse 14, my presence will go with you. I'll give you rest. And then in verse 15, Moses responds, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up for here, from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses knows that for the people of God to succeed at any of these plans that the Lord has for them, the Lord has to be with them. And not just okay with their existence. He actually has to be with them, dwelling with them among them. This is the promise that God has made. And, and it's only through this that all the other promises that God has made to them can be fulfilled, is that the Lord would dwell with them. And the golden calf is not just a story of a moral lapse in judgment, in other words. Uh, this, this is the hinge Right, on, on which Israel will either succeed and live out God's promises or be utterly destroyed. That's what is at stake here. And that's what's at stake in Moses' pleading before the Lord for their sake. See, Moses, this is my third point, Moses points us ahead to Christ. He, in all the ways that Moses is an intercessor for God's people, Christ is infinitely greater and, and Moses does a pretty good job. Uh, we, we know that Moses is a broken person, and there are all sorts of ways that he disappoints uh, our expectations. But, but as great as Moses is, as great as his love for the people of God is, Jesus exceeds it to the nth degree, which should be a tremendous encouragement for us uh, because, because it reminds us of God's mercy and his, his love all these episodes with Moses going before the Lord, and, and I encourage you to read them for yourself. Read these chapters. I, I was tempted even just to read straight through 32 through 34 and just let it preach for itself. But in all these episodes, Moses comes before the Lord, and, and we are given glimpses of God's mercy and of God's glory. We haven't even talked about the fact that at the end of these chapters, Moses comes off the mountain and his face is shining so brightly he has to wear a veil because it freaks the people out so much to see his face shining like that. They can't handle the glory of God, even when it's reflected in a mere man. They can't handle it. It's too overwhelming. It's too much of a reminder of God's just transcendence and his power and his, his wrath against sin, his justice. But I want you to see that it's, it's also a reminder of God's 
glory, his, his, his presence with the people. It's, it's through his glory alone that the people of God will have any success. And, and so then Christ is really, he's the fullness of, of all of this. And if you turn with me to John, his gospel, just that very first chapter, John, John's definitely thinking about this when he writes. You look at John 1, 14 through 18. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has, he has made him known. It's through Jesus that we see God. It's through Jesus that we get a glimpse of God's own character, who he is. Uh, Hebrews says that Jesus is the full radiance of God's glory. And, and right here in these chapters, we, we are reminded of, of the fact that God's glory is too much to be seen. Even Moses, he asks, he begs, he pleads with the Lord to, to let Moses catch a glimpse of who God is. And the Lord says, all right, I'll, I'll let you look at my back. And while I'm walking in front of you, I'll put my hand over your face so you can't see me and all of my splendor. And while I'm doing this, I will reveal my name to you. I'll tell you my name, he says. I'll declare who I am. And as he walks in front of Moses, he says, I am the Lord. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Because this, this is the God that the Israelites worship. It's so important for them to see him as this merciful compassionate God because if he is not they have no hope and and, and John you, you know he's thinking about this because as he thinks about Jesus and the glory of God he's reminded that it's only through Jesus that we can see God apart from Jesus we would be wiped out we we would have to have some barrier between us and him because of our iniquity because of our fallenness but through Jesus we we have direct access to the father through Jesus we can actually be brought into the glory of God. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that he is the only mediator between God and men. Jesus is Moses 2.0. Um, I mentioned earlier that, that the Lord spoke to Moses as with a friend. And I think it's good just to, to kind of close on that note because that, that's, that's what we see here is, is the Lord's incredible mercy toward his people through Jesus. And, and in John 15, uh, verse 15, Jesus says this, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For, the, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Only Moses could have considered God his friend, right? Only Mo, it's only Moses that the Lord spoke to face to face as with a friend. Exodus says. Uh, but, but through Jesus, right, we, we are actually made familiar with the, the God of our creation um, because he considers us a friend through Christ, 
right? Moses has no power in and of himself to make the people of God friends of God. Moses has no power in and of himself to, to actually atone for their sin. He can't do it. A sacrifice must be made. And, and Jesus then becomes the perfect Moses because it's through Jesus that he doesn't just say, let me go see if I can make atonement for you. Jesus actually, by his very life and death, does that. He brings it about. And it's through him that, that we're called God's friends. And it's through him um, that we ourselves are not destroyed, but are actually made able to live out the commands of God that he gives. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this truth. We are reminded um, so often in, in your word in the Old Testament and in Exodus of all the ways that we fail to measure up. And maybe we read passages like this and think that we are so advanced and, and logical and, and rational people that we know that there are no gods but you. We don't, we don't worship anyone else but you. We would never make a golden calf and descend into that level of foolishness. But the reality is that we fail to worship you rightly in a million other ways. Even the Israelites themselves failed to worship you rightly, and it wasn't just because they made a calf. But it began when they forgot all that you had done for them, when they forgot who you were to them. And likewise, we fail to worship you well when we forget who you are for us and all that you have done for us. So help us to worship you rightly, not because of any inherent value in ourselves, but through the blood of Jesus, through the, the intermediary that we have in him. Like Moses before him, Jesus stands between a holy God and an unholy people. It is Jesus who holds off our certain destruction and your your justice by actually absorbing your justice himself, absorbing your wrath himself, that we might be considered your friends. Help us to walk in your truth. Help us to walk according to your grace, that we might please you and that we might honor you. We ask it in the name of Jesus alone. Amen.